Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis 49. Well, this section has turned into a mini-series. This is the third sermon that is going to be a fourth one on this section. (laughs) Because there's 12 tribes. So there's many to many signs to preach on. I thought I could just summarize it, but as I've been going through the section, I think it would be fruitful to look at each tribe. So this morning I'm just going to read the text that we'll look at for today. I won't read the whole chapter. And we'll start with verse 13. Zebulun would dwell of Genesis 49. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Iskar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good, and the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens, and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for God, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Lord, as we continue to worship you, to give you thanks and to exalt you, to praise you for Christ, our Savior and Lord, we come to this unique passage, Lord, this list of names, the tribes of Israel and some prophetic declarations and descriptions about them. We just pray you give us insight to understand what your text is saying and that we would be people that do the word that we wouldn't simply be hearers of this word, even this prophetic word, where there's no explicit commands, that we would still learn and be doers and heed the instruction, Lord. May your spirit work through your word today. Give me grace to be clear, accurate, purposeful, and earnest, Lord. We give you the glory for Christ's sake. Amen. Usually... The solution is simple. Not all the time, but usually the the solution is is simple. My daughter's brakes on her bike wouldn't work. I would try to move the bike and the front wheel would not turn at all. It it was stuck. Even if I tried to pull it with my hand, it, it wouldn't budge. And as I examined it, the two front brakes were just clamping down with this super fast clamp. And I watched a couple of YouTube videos on how to fix it. And because I have a galaxy brain, I knew that for sure I'd be able to fix it. I tried many different things. I cannot fix it. It it, it still wouldn't budge. So I knew of a bike shop in Sumner. It's a pretty good bike shop. The best thing is it's right by a milkshake shop. So I took uh, my family there, and they went to the milkshake, milkshake shop as I went to the bike shop. 
So I brought it in to the mechanic, and I said, there's a great problem. This is my daughter's bike. She got it for her birthday. I think something's really messed up. I hope I don't have to get a whole new bike or a whole new front tire or a whole, a whole new brake system. And so he says, bring it in. So I bring the bike in. I set it down. He looks at it for about maybe three seconds, then takes the handle wheel, not handle wheel, handles, and turns it 360, and it was fixed. That was the problem. <laughs> Galaxy brain. Don't ask me to fix anything if it's broken in your house. The solution was very simple. I almost wanted to get a hacksaw and just saw through the whole brake system and, and the sporks, you know, those things and everything. I was so flabbergasted beside myself that I couldn't fix it. So I took it in and he looked at it and it was just that somehow the handlebars got turned around. So the brake lines, I guess, were compressed and squeezed and couldn't function properly. And I was ready just to toss in the, the whole bike. Forget it. He fixed it in three seconds and then he looks at me leans forward and goes, that'll be $100, please. <laughs> he was joking. He laughed. <laughs> I even tried to pay him something, and he said, no, thank you. He said, no, no, on the house. It just took three seconds. <laughs> Sometimes the solution can be simple. It, it, it may not necessarily be easy. It, it may be hard. That solution was humbling for me, but it was simple. And I think that you and I in the Christian life, the solutions often are simple. Life can be complex, but the solution is often pretty simple. And what I mean, and as we look at this text, is that to go forward, we take one step after another. How do you grow in Christ? How do you make progress? You, you have to take a step. You keep on keeping on. And Israel, when they received the book of Genesis, when they received the first five books of the Bible, they were in the wilderness. They were on their way to the promised land. They, they didn't believe God. They didn't believe God's promises. You can read about this in Numbers. Only two people that have been delivered out of Egypt, that saw all the great miracles of God, only two people were allowed to go into the promised land because they believed God. Even after all the great miracles and the parting of the Red Sea, only Caleb and Joshua believed God. All the other Israelites did not. Not even Moses entered the promised land. And so God gives him this word, the word of God, the book of Genesis. And in chapter 49 here, it's all of... They're granddaddies. So Israel is wandering around in the wilderness. They have to wander around for 40 years before they can enter the promised land. That first generation is going to die off. There's going to be a second generation that's going to get to go into the promised land. And there is this prophetic blessing. Prophetic because you can see this in verse 49, uh, verse 1 of chapter 49. I tell you what will befall you in the days to come. This is a prophetic declaration that God is given about their tribe and about their granddaddies 400 years ago. Who was their great-granddaddy? What was he about? And what was the prophetic declaration that was made about him or made about them? 
In light of that, they are, are continued to press forward into the promised land. Now, I, I did not know this, but even former, I say former because he's with the Lord now, James Montgomery Boyce, a commentator, a preacher, wrote about this section. Diligent effort and hard work never stop God's people. We ought to press on in God's service throughout the whole life. That's James Montgomery Boyce and his commentary on Genesis. So I would say that the theme, the the point that I want you to get today is keep pressing forward because God rules and the whole world is going to one day be under the reign of Jesus. And we've already looked at that, so we're not going to look at the idea of the whole world being under the reign of Jesus. We saw that last week with Judah. But the main point here is that God is ruling. He declares what's going to be done. Even with these individuals and even with their tribes. Because of that, and because ultimately God wins, Christ wins, keep going forward into the promised land. And I would add this. I said this as a prophetic declaration. What is the point of prophecy? In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is there a point to prophecy? Prophecies can be very entertaining in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. What is the point of prophecy? The, the main point of prophecy is to repent. That's the main point. If you examine all the prophecies, ultimately they're in a contextual setting of change how you live. Believe God, believe Christ, change what you need to change, and get ready. And it's the same way here. That is, this passage is not given just to entertain the people of Israel as they wander around or to entertain us, but rather to get us to do, to believe God and to keep pressing on. And that's what I mean when I say it's it's simple in terms of that it can be difficult to understand what we need to do is we need to keep going forward in Christ. Remember what we said last week, if you're not pressing forward and taking ground in your own life for Christ, then you very well could be going backwards. You can't just hold the line, not in Jesus. You have to keep going forward. Fight the fight. Run the race. That is movement. Keep moving and becoming more like Jesus. Those that are who we take promises that God gives us in order that we can become more like Jesus. Now, we've said that there are these map keys in this passage. This passage is almost like a, a map, and there are different keys to understand it. And we've seen four of them. I'm not going to go over those now. And we're going to look at several today. We're going to look at number five. Again, we're saying, how do we press forward in order to grow in Christ, to conquer sin, to grow as a Christian? I I must press forward in him. I must strive to become like him. I I need to place one step in front of the other. Am I more godly now, today, than I was at this time last year, or, or less godly? Or am I the same? I should be becoming more like Jesus. And only you and perhaps your family can answer that. But shouldn't we be more like Jesus? If I'm spending more time with God and really pressing hard into Christ, then I should be at least a little bit more godly. 
So how do we do this? So we've seen four of these ways, and we've seen to trust God's sovereignty, to to trust Christ. We've seen some others. Today we're going to look at number five. The fifth map key is this. Press forward by seeking fruitfulness. I don't know if Brett saw my notes, but in his prayer he talked about fruitfulness. And this fifth point is press forward by seeking fruitfulness. And we see this in verses 13 and 14 through these two sons of Jacob. Through Zebulun and Iskar, we see this striving for fruitfulness. That is, to, to press forward in Christ, to be able to grow in Him, to have more faith, to overcome your sin, to fight against remaining sin and Satan, you have to work for effectiveness. To be effective, it, it does take hard work. Hard work can be simple, but, but it's still hard. So we're not saying things aren't hard or difficult, but we're saying often the answers are not necessarily super complex. Going forward in your life takes you striving to have more effectiveness, which means that's hard work. And I would just remind you, before we go further, we do see that the New Testament talks about the Old Testament and its usefulness for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these, things, now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And there's also other verses, like in Romans 15. So this was given to us, all of these descriptions about these sons of Jacob, but here Zebulun and Iskar, not just to store them into our minds, but to cause us to, to do certain things, to teach us how not to live and how to live. So when we look at Zebulun and, and Iskar, maybe we can say Zeb and Iskar, we see what to do and what not to do. We see what to do and what not to do. There is both a blessing here and an anti-blessing, so to speak. Uh, first, look at verse 13. And if you are familiar with the tribes of Israel and geography, you're going to be scratching your head. It says, Zeblin would dwell at the seashore. That's actually not true. Zeblin was not a coastal region. <laughs> so what's going on? Is the Bible inaccurate? Zeblin would dwell at the seashore. If you take your Bible, some of your Bibles have maps at the back. And where is Zeblin? Is it a coastal region? It's not. And he shall be a haven for ships. What? And his flank shall be toward Sidon. Okay. Well, if you look at verse 13, Zebulun would dwell at the seashore. The word at is the idea of toward. It doesn't mean side by side. It doesn't mean right beside. But it's toward that direction. That's the idea of the Hebrew. It will dwell in a direction of the seashore. Well, how is it a haven for ships? You you might remember that that whole area of Israel, and, and Zebulun too as well, was part of that fertile crescent. So you would have ships that would come from all over the, the Mediterranean, 
and they would come to their western seaboard of Israel. They would port right there. Well, from the Mesopotamian region, to go across the whole desert, they would follow what's called the Philatile Crescent. They would go up above the desert and then come back down this way, like a crescent moon. And so they would come back down, and when they would come back down, they would often go through the region of Zeb, Zebulun. And that became a haven for ships in the sense that these ships over here, they would unload all their goods and they would go where? They would go to Zebulun. And then when traveling merchants would come down, they would come down the Philatile Crescent area and there they would do their trading. So again, the preposition is not on, but it's at. It's, it was toward the direction of the seashore and it ended up being a haven of ships with all their goods would be unloaded and brought to that trade center. Further, what's interesting about Zebulun, Zeb, is he's listed before his brother. His older brother was Iskar. And normally, the older brother gets preeminence and is listed first. But here, Zebulun is listed first. Now, if you keep looking at this passage, it's interesting when you look at Iskar. There's a little bit of a contradiction with Iskar. Iskar is a strong donkey. Has anybody ever called you a donkey? We wouldn't call people donkey today. Children, don't call your parents or your siblings donkey. But back during the Old Testament times, it wasn't necessarily a critique. Donkeys are characterized by what? Not just being stubborn. Work, hard work, labor, tough, tough and strong. So Iskar is a strong donkey. They, you know, we're capable of, of a lot of hard work, carrying burdens. But then what, what does it say? Lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw a resting place that was good, he bowed his shoulders to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. What? <laughs> so you have the idea of, of Iskar and they had the potential to be strong and to work really hard. But they became lazy. And when they saw a place to sleep, what did they do? They crashed. They went to sleep. So much so that they were willing to give up their liberty and be slaves so they could have at least a sense of more rest that they thought. It's better to, to give up my freedom and, and not work so hard, maybe I can still have some rest, than if I had to work for all my own things, I can be more of a forced laborer. That's historically even what happened. He bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. So it's the idea, really, that they were equipped by their land, maybe by their constitution, through God's providence, to be really good, hard workers. But they instead became lazy, and through their laziness, they lost their liberty. So you have Zeblin, who's the second son, compared to Iskar was ahead of him. But Zeblin had preeminence. And even though they were not by the sea, they made do with what they had, and they became good business people. And though they were inland, their 
ability to do trade and business enabled them to be a haven for trade merchants, even when they weren't by the sea. And that brings out the idea that they were working hard. In fact, ancient Near East, they found ancient cuneiform writings that described during this day and age labor games, labor gangs in this card that described how the Jews of this time period in that region joined labor gangs and, and were not free. But yet they had the ability to work hard enough so they wouldn't have to join these kind of frugal systems. But they did. And this is, again, a prophetic declaration that God is making to them. And so you have this contrast. Zeblin, who makes do with what they have and, and does well and becomes prosperous, and Zeblin, who has the potential maybe even to, to do more and, and be better in terms of, of trade and ability, but they become lazy, and what happens? They become slaves. And I think that the picture, I think, is clear, is God is 100% sovereign over all things. God's in charge. What does that mean? We sleep? We fold our hands? No, we, we work hard. We, we strive. We, we go for it. The sovereignty of God doesn't cancel out the free agency of man. And we can see that from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's not that God's sovereignty and man's free agency are pitted against each other. They are because of our sinfulness. But in our free agency, we seek to be responsible agents to work hard for him. Now, to summarize this then, to put it in maybe one sentence, believers should not coast. Here again, you can see Iskar, they're a strong donkey. Sounds weird to us, but it's the idea that they have the strength to carry a lot of burdens, do a lot of work. But when they see the opportunity, they sleep. And so you have these two brothers pitted against each other in terms of the metaphors, in terms of the picture, and even the work ethic. And in light of the whole passage, as believers, and Israel's also receiving this, remember, as they were wandering around in the wilderness, we want to be men and women, believers, that trust God enough to work hard. Think about it this way. Normally, normally, if you want to have a growing garden, most of your plants, not necessarily all of them, but many of your plants, you have to work at it somewhat. If you want to have healthy, growing, you know, really a lot of fruitfulness, whether vegetation or fruit, you have to tend to it to a degree. If you don't, then the fruit may be there some, but not as great as it would be as if you really, by God's grace and under grace, worked hard at it. And I think that's the point here is how do you press forward? You seek to be effective. How do you be effective? Well, you make choices to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to be in Christian fellowship, take time to study your Bible, take time to memorize some verses, 
take some time to evangelize, take some time to serve. These are all effective means to see yourself grow in Christ. Because it could be after two years, three years, four years, you, you look at your life and you say, I, you know, I, I, I just feel like I'm, if I can allegorize this a little bit, I still feel like I'm a slave to certain sins. You know, forced labor. Well, it, it could be because you're just, in India, they would say, Chiltai, hey, everything's okay, Solna, you're just going to sleep, you're just going to rest. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ, and so I rest. I'm not saved by by works. It's true. You're not saved by work. You're saved by the work of Christ. But you are saved, and you rest in Christ so you can work. Do you understand? You're not saved. Am I being clear? You're not saved by your own works. You're saved from having to work for salvation. But as you rest in Christ, you rest in Christ so you can work hard in Christ to go forward. And I think that's the application of this passage comparing these two brothers. There's a fifth map key here. A fifth map key. And let me say this as well. As we go through all these brothers, Jacob, the Spirit of God through Jacob, is given one or two slices of the pie about each brother and about each tribe. So these prophetic declarations don't say everything about every tribe. It says some things about each tribe. Okay? Now, there's also a sixth map key. We want to press forward in Christ because the more that we become like him, the more promises that we trust, the more that we are living and thinking and responding like Jesus, there will be more, not only a reward in heaven, but even more joy in this life. So there's also this six map key. A six one. Press forward by not allowing your perception to control your destination. Don't allow your perception to control your destination. Now, by your perception, I mean your own perception of yourself, but even how others perceive you. Don't let that control you. And we see this with this prophetic declaration about Dan in verses 16 and 17. Others might think that you're insignificant and that you're a loser. Have, has anybody ever called you a loser? I've had people call me a loser. <laughs> you're a nobody. You're a loser. And sometimes what I say to them is, you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> I'm a big loser. No, the L. Big loser, big time loser. I'm very insignificant and I'm a big time loser. 100% correct. <laughs> it's true. But I'm not going to allow that perception, whether it's from you or Satan, control my life. God has plans for me, and by his grace, I can carry out those plans. You can be a loser, and you can be insignificant in terms of the world and how they see you. You could be a loser and insignificant even in how the church sees you, and yet God can still use you greatly. And I think that's the point of what God is saying. And we see that with Dan throughout Scripture. So let's look at this text. 
First, you'll note it says that Dan is going to be a, a judge. Dan shall judge his people. Judge means a ruler and a deliverer, like in the book of Judges. So Dan is going to act in some sense in the future. Israel's reading this, and they're reading that in some sense in the future, the tribe Dan is going to act in a special way as a fighting, heroic deliverer. Further, it says in 17, Dan shall be a serpent. Now, I asked you before, has anybody called you a donkey? Maybe they have. (laughs) I've had people not just call me a loser, but a donkey from the south. And so donkey could be a word they would use. I haven't had anybody call me a snake. You're a snake, you you viper. But here, it's taken in a good way. So I would say don't do it. You know, young men, if you want to say flattering words to a woman, don't go to her and say you're just like a viper, babe. Probably wouldn't go over too well. However, even Jesus said what? Be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as? Yeah, as serpents. So there was something about a serpent that even we can learn from that had some kind of good connotation. Remember that Jesus is the Lion of God, but even Satan is compared to a lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, so God can take an animal and use it in in many different ways as a picture. Here, the idea of a snake, and you can look at verse 17, a horned snake. What kind of snake is that? Nobody is entirely sure, but it's in the path, and it bites the horse's heel, so the rider falls backward, falls off. So you can have a big horse, and you have what? How big is a snake compared to a horse? Small. Right? Tiny. Yeah, this tiny snake, it can scare a horse, it can bite a horse. That horse is going to jump, it's going to reel back in its hind legs, it can completely stop the rider, the rider could fall off, he could fall backwards, he could be very hurt. And it's just this small, crafty, poisonous snake that could do this. So you might be on your horse. See a little, little viper and ignore it. And then what happens? Horse gets bit, horse goes down, you get hurt. Have, have you ever seen, or sat, I shouldn't say seen, have you ever sat down by a snake? Have I told you when I sat down by a snake? So we were hiking the Appalachian Mountains with my dad and my brother. I sat down and I heard something and I turned my head. And right there was a cotton mouth. And I said, when I say jump, jump. So I forgot to say the word jump, and I just jumped. Because I was petrified. Have you guys seen snakes? When, when It was fine. That was the same time we got chased by the yellow jackets. Same trip. Exact same trip. It was a, it was a crazy day. Have you ever sat down by a snake? I've, we used to go out in the desert in California near Edwards Air Force Base, and we would hear all the time. And so we did what we could to stay away from them. So at night, we would sleep in the back of the pickup truck. Why to stay away from snakes? But they're so small. I mean, right? 
comparatively, I mean, compared to a horse or to you, they're really tiny. But they're what? They're deadly and they're powerful. And that's what it's saying about Dan. That Dan, not necessarily it's material blessing, but Dan, in terms of a people group, was not necessarily that significant. And even in the history of Israel, it got divided. And if you were to look at Judges 18.1, even historically, it says in Judges 18.1 that they hadn't yet inherited their land. They hadn't yet taken all of their land, even by Judges 18.1. So in that sense, they could be looked at as insignificant and, and losers. However, what judge, what hero of the faith was from the tribe Dan? Do you remember Samson, 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 that killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Philistines. So though, in some senses, an insignificant tribe of Israel, one of the greatest judges in the book of Judges was from the tribe of Dan, Samson. He's even in the Hall of Faith, right? Hebrews 11.32. Now, Samson had problems with his morality. and Even Dan did. It says that Dan worshipped idols. Later in their history, in the book of Judges, they struggled. But in the end, Samson did what? He overcame. In the end, Samson exercised great faith. So he's in the hall of faith. In fact, some Bibles translate this in this way. May Dan judges people. Some translate this as a prayer. Uh, Bruce Walkie, for example, if you're familiar with that name, a Hebrew textual scholar would translate it, may Dan judge his people. So here what we see then is you have this tribe that had a lot of issues, that had a lot of problems. You have Samson who had a very heroic, maybe kind of like Shakespearean figure that had a lot of issues, a lot of problems with morality. But at the end, he believed God. And he was used throughout his life to do significant things for the people of God. He struggled. But at the end, he believed God. And I think we see this here. And Genesis forty nine seventeen about Dan. And we, we could look at Samson and say, what? You know, I, I would never, I'm not putting you down if you do this, but when Lisa and I knew that we were having a boy, the first name in my mind wasn't Samson. It wasn't, what should I call my son? Judas or Samson? No, I, I wouldn't, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think that way normally. But Samson... It says in Hebrews 11, was a man of faith. He struggled mightily, but in the end, he believed in God and was used by God. And so we see, historically throughout the Bible, that though we may have some doubts and look down on Dan and on Samson, in the end, did Samson believe? Yes. So much so that he's in the hall of faith. So the takeaway is this. Though you struggle and you might think you have no significant progress, don't give up. 
Maybe you look at your life this morning and ask yourself, have I made progress in Christ? Am I going forward? Am I going backward? There were times Samson would go forward, and then what would happen? (laughs) Go backwards. Two steps forward, one step backwards. And then maybe two more steps backwards. (laughs) And And then go forward three or four more times. And he was doing that his whole life. But we can see that he had faith because he's in the hall of faith. But also at the end of his life, we see that he trusted and believed and called on the name of the Lord. So don't allow your past, don't allow your present, don't allow what other people say about you saying that you're insignificant or you loser. You're made in the image of God, so you're not a loser and you're not insignificant because you're made in the image of God. As a believer, you're regenerated, Ephesians 2.10, you're his masterpiece, and God has a purpose for you. De Gomer and Key, an old Christian band, have a song called Loser. And their chorus says, all the losers win in Jesus Christ. And in one sense, we're all losers, right? We're all sinners. We're all saved only by the grace of God and Christ. Could anybody here get to heaven on their own righteousness? No. Then all of us, in one sense, are losers. <laughs> we would all lose if it was up to ourselves. But in Christ, we all win. And we're created anew. And no matter what's happened in your past, the Bible says the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from all your sin, 1 John 1.7. And even today, you can have a new start and a new kind of life and keep pressing forward, knowing that in Christ you are significant and he has a plan for you. If Samson's in the hall of faith and God will, and God will to write a hall of faith, if Samson can be there and if God will to write a new hall of faith, maybe we could be there. Can you have the faith of, of Samson? Again, when, when I think of great, faithful people, the first name that, that comes to my mind is not what? Samson. <laughs> but the Hebrews 12 says, look, basically, look at the heroes of our faith and follow their pattern. In some ways, don't be like Samson at all. In other ways, be like Samson. Go to the end, believe God, in Christ, you're significant, fight hard, he has a plan for you. Don't allow other people to control how you see and what you think about yourself. There's a seventh map key, number seven. So you've said number five is, actually, you have to put in some work. It's not that complex to be like Jesus, but you have to work hard. Ephesians 6.12 talks about it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Because we're fighting against Satan and sin and our remaining sin. It's hard. It's not necessarily always complex. Work hard. Then number six with our original outline, then we're saying that the world and maybe even church, maybe even friends and families are going to have certain perceptions about you. Maybe they're right. (laughs) But you're not a loser with a big L in the sense that you have no significance. You have significance in Christ. By God's grace, you can be faithful. Keep going forward. Number seven, press forward by never giving up and gallop on. Or you can just say number seven, the seventh map key. If you had a little map key on your map, I might have a picture of a horse galloping. Why am I doing that? kind of strange. 
that's a galloping horse. Why, why would I talk about that? Well, this is poetic. You can have a historical book like Genesis and yet it have poetry. Poetry isn't confined to the Proverbs or Psalms. It can even be here in Genesis 49. And, and when you look here at verse 19, almost every word, almost every word, has the letters G and D. I think there are two words that don't have it. That is in the original Hebrew. So it sounds... And Gad was a place, Gilead was a place known for its pastures and horses. And that's why even here it talks about raiders. And he will raid at their heels. Again, Hebrew would have a consonant, three consonants in every word. And here it's GD, is repeated in some form and in almost every word. And so it sounds like... There's this pattern, like a galloping horse. And perhaps God wrote it this way to have them to to remember. As for Gad, riders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Now, remember historically, what does Gad do? They get the land where? They choose to get the land on what side of, of the Jordan? The west side or the east side? The east side. They choose the land before they cross over the Jordan, right? And they chose that land because it looked very prosperous. Talking about the text theology and its main import to us right now. Gad. This verse is very poetic. And they chose their land ahead of time. Eventually, it became known as Gilead, and it was a good land. But but what was the problem? Is that it was surrounded by what? By enemies, right? Moab, Ammon. And in fact, throughout its life, Ammonites, Moabites, Assyrians, many different people groups attacked them and tried to destroy them because they were kind of cut off from the, the main of Israel. And Deuteronomy says this about them. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 20. Of Gad, he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gads. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. And he even talks about even more of the other groups. Gad is going to be blessed by God, and even Gad God will be blessed by God, and he lies down as a lion. You see more of these animals being interchanged and used referring to God. God was very valiant in some senses, in some ways. Because you can even look, it says, as for God, raiders shall raid him. They're always being attacked, but what's going to happen? He will raid at their heels. So if you remember then, historically what happens is that Joshua says, basically, yes, you can stay there, but you have to come over here to the other side of the Jordan, help us submit this land. Then you have to go back into your own land. So that's what God did. So God went over, fought for all of Israel throughout the Israel land, and then went back over the Jordan, and then they also had to fight for their own land. 
they chose, in one sense, uh, trouble. They knew that, yes, we're going to pick this land. It was known as a land of pasture, you know, a lot of grass and hills, great place for horses. They chose that area. But there would be problems. And so you can look at that, the text. Look at the text. Raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. They're going to be attacked, but they're going to attack back. Maybe you remember the charge of the, of the light brigade. Do you guys remember the charge of the light brigade? Well, that's not a great example because were they successful or unsuccessful? They were unsuccessful. They were wiped out. But it is the idea of horses charging. Perhaps a better picture here would be the ride of the Rohirrim from Lord of the Rings, Rohan, when they charge down at Gondor and, and, and rescue the Gondorites from all the orcs of Sauron. That's more the picture here, is that you have God that chose to be in a difficult place, but they keep on going. And the the, the picture here of the sounds is they're going to keep on galloping. They're going to keep on going. They're going to keep on attacking that enemy. They're going to keep on going. So then there is also this New Testament principle. Let me see this in 2 Timothy 2.3. 2 Timothy 2, 3. And I think it corresponds. One thing that's true about all of life. And Paul brings this up to his son in the faith. 2 Timothy 2, 3. Set for hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Part of life is suffering. God chose. We want this land. We, we know that there's a cost with it. We accept that cost. And we will fight for it. And they ended up fighting for it for a long, long, long time. And it's the same way in the Christian life. There's hardship all the time. And we've talked about this, but you go through one hardship, and then what happens? You have a respite. Thank you, Lord. You know, we need those respites. Thank you, Lord. And then after you go through one hard time, and there's maybe a few weeks, a few months, maybe a couple years, then what happens? The bottom drops out of life. Whoa! (laughs) I thought that was hard two years ago. This is even harder. And here the message is, it's true. Keep pressing forward like this horse. It's just, I'm going to charge, I'm going to gallop, I'm going to keep going forward. Having this never-say-die attitude, I'm going to gallop on. The fruit of the Spirit is what? I'm going to give up. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, Patience, long-suffering, right? So there is this work that the Spirit of God does in our life where I'm going to keep pressing forward and I'm going to believe in Christ. I'm significant. I, I know that I need to work hard, but I'm going to have this, you know, press ahead, char- charge. I'm going to keep going forward. Jesus is returning soon. Jesus wins. So with pressing forward, I need to have the idea that I'm never going to give up. I want to keep going forward. I mean, there are many things in life that we don't give up on, right? Do you have hobbies? Do you have a favorite hobby that's always succeeding and you just love it? You know, there are so many things we do in life that takes time, effort, energy, and we even fail at them. But do we give up? 
But sometimes in Christianity and with God, we have a hard time, it's difficult, and then we give up. Here, the message is to Israel and to the church, keep going forward, keep galloping on, press on. There's an eighth key, an eighth map key, and that's this. Press forward by using wisdom with your blessings. Use wisdom with your blessings. Look at verse 20. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Royal delights is the idea at the end of verse 20. Asher means pleasant or, or happy or fortunate. Consider this happy Asher. For his food shall be rich and he will yield royal delights. Isn't it funny? You know, all the sons, many of the sons, it says all kinds of things about them. But for Asher, it says his food shall be rich and he will yield royal delights or royal pleasanties. To me, it's very funny that that's the description of a tribe of Israel. However, though it's a brief, it is instructive. Like the verse before it, Asher has that, as God had GD, those consonants in almost every single word, this verse here has MS, the letters M and S in Hebrew, in almost every single word. And so though both God and Asher, it doesn't say a lot, the way that it's written would make it a little bit more beautiful and a little bit more emphatic. Now, they were on the coast. And they were west of the Sea of Galilee, on the coast. A lot of vineyards, a lot of olive trees, a lot of blessings, very abundant. They also had a lot of rain. But it could be very well, right here, he will yield, he will give up royal delights. It may be, and historically this is true, that what happened, that area was overcome and invaded by and overcome by the Phoenicians. They had a lot of wealth. They were very prosperous, maybe one of the most prosperous because they were right there on the coast. They had all kinds of olive trees, port cities, all kinds of vineyards. And we know that historically they were invaded by the Phoenicians and they had a hard time with them. So it could be here in verse 20 that the idea is that the people of Asher will end up all of their all of their wealth and all of their money that they worked so very hard to have, they do what with it? They have to give it up. And it seems that that's the picture. And even in Judges, at times, Asher doesn't join the fight. They live in luxury, Judges 5.17, while all the other tribes are fighting. They're taking care of their wealth while all the others are working. That is a picture of Asher. So I think we can gather this. Press forward by using wisdom with your blessings. If God blesses you, and God does bless us, but when he blesses you with the stuff of life, use it for his glory. Love God more than the blessings. Be careful with the riches of this world. 
Asher was very rich. It says that his food shall be rich and he's going to have royal delights. The things, the, the material blessings that they have, they'll be used by kings. And the connotation here is he will yield is not just in, in a horticultural sense, but maybe even having to give this up to foreign kings. And we know from the book of Judges, they cared more for their luxury, at least at times, than they did for Israel. And so I'm reminded of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering of these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and perished themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. And I think that's the message for you and I this morning. What do you love? Do you, do you love money? You may remember, I, I told you the story. I've forgotten all the stories I've told you. When I was in eighth grade, I had an art teacher, and we had to draw a picture of what we love, and I wasn't quite sure what to draw. And so she came to my desk, and she said, just draw what you love. And I said, yeah, but I, I'm not exactly sure how to draw that. And she said, well, just draw money. I said, what? She said, don't you love money? I don't think I was saved yet in eighth grade. I said, no. And she was, you don't love money? No. She couldn't understand that. We don't love money. We love God, and then we love people. I'm also reminded of the book of Proverbs. A very helpful verse that I try to remind myself of. 8 and 9. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. I don't want to be super rich. I don't want to be dirt poor. (laughs) Give me what I need, Lord. And then when you give me more than I need... May I use that, yes, to provide for my family, but then to bless others. Actually, we have the most wealth than anybody that's ever been born, and that is true. We don't see that necessarily at the moment, but if you read Revelation, the end, Revelation 20 through 22, it talks about the wealth that belongs to us in the new heaven and the new earth. Whether you take that in a literal way or a figurative way, the very end of the book, when it talks about all the jewels and New Jerusalem, it's at least saying that to you is going to belong infinite wealth. More than any emperor, king, president, more than Mr. Gates, more than Rothschild, Rockefeller, whoever, you, you combine all of their money and it would just be things that you walk upon. And it's yours. And so we need to live in light of that. 
that any of the material blessings that God gives us now, we give him thanks, we provide for our family, and then we seek to use it for, for ministry with wisdom that we can bless others. Because when you die, you can't use it. It's gone. So this is the, the eighth map key. Use wisdom with your blessings. And we can pray, God, give me wisdom so I can know how to use all that you've given me for your kingdom. We press forward, not by building our kingdom, but by building his kingdom, making eternal investments. Because God rules over all, and Jesus reigns, and will reign of the whole universe, press forward, becoming more like Jesus Christ. Again, it's not complex. It's really simple. My brother and I, we used to love to swim. And I lived close to the ocean, about 45 minutes away. And sometimes out in the ocean, we would go to a certain place, and there would be a buoy beyond the breakers. And we would try to swim to that buoy. And my brother, who was four years older than me, would say, let's swim to the buoy. I never told him this, but it terrified me. I was thinking of sharks, and can I really make it there and back to that buoy? And I think almost every time we tried to swim there, I always thought, I'm going to drown right here, right today. I can't swim like he can swim. So I would have to do side stroke, back stroke, float, swim underwater. <laughs> I had to do all these. I had to use every swimming maneuver I could think of to get to the buoy. And then once I got to the buoy, I realized, uh-oh, now I have to go back. <laughs> but I had waves going, going with me. But I, I realized, you know what? It's just one stroke, right? Just one kick. Can I, can I go one kick? Can I kick my legs one more time? Yes. I, I'd get really tired. Then I'd think to myself, can I just kick one more time? I can, so I'd kick. Can I, can I kick one more time? Yes. Can I kick it again? Yes, I can. I can do it. One more time. Yes. One more time. Uh, maybe on my back. <laughs> there have been many times where I've had to get on my back swimming. Can I kick one more time on my back? Yes. I think it's very similar in the Christian life. Do you feel like right now you're a place where you're worn out? You, you, you can't go forward. Can you go one more day. Just one more day. Read the word. Pray. Can you just press on just a little bit? Is he worthy? Is he in charge? Does he love you? Yes. Go one day, then after you go one day, can you go one more day? By his grace you can in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. May these lessons that we see with these tribes of, of Israel that are different from us, but not too far different, Lord, may we learn from them and those things which are true and according to your word. May they lodge within our heart and mind and change us, Lord, forever. And for any of those here that feel they can't go on, that they are insignificant, maybe that they are losers, maybe that they've sinned like Samson, Lord, I, I pray that you would encourage them, that there's forgiveness in Christ. And that by your grace, they can press on. They can take one more step and then another step by your grace and through Christ. Lord, we thank you for your faithful love. We give you the glory. Amen.